All right, so friends, we've been going through the book of Acts for a while now, and what we've been doing is that we've been following the Apostle Paul's journey of preaching the gospel to everyone, right? He's preached to Jewish people, he's preached to non-Jewish people, he's preached to Roman soldiers, he's preached to everyone throughout his life and ministry. And out of all the people that Paul's preached the gospel to, what we've seen is that the ones that are most against the gospel or reactive toward the gospel were the Jews. In fact, they hated the gospel so much that they organized a citywide riot against Paul in Jerusalem. That's what we saw two weeks ago and also last week. And this riot we saw got so huge that the Roman soldiers in that area had to secure Paul and send him on a boat from Jerusalem all the way up to Rome where he was then put on trial in this like federal courtroom type situation where all the big case trials were tried back then, okay? So the passage we're about to study today is a courtroom scene in Rome after the Jerusalem riot where Paul is there as the defendant and the Jews are there represented by this lawyer named Tertullus who we'll see later. They're the prosecutors and then you see a Roman governor named Felix, who's also there as the judge, okay? Paul, uh, the Jewish people represented by Tertullus, and Felix. And what you'll see happen in this courtroom is that the lawyer of the Jewish people, Tertullus, he just starts throwing out accusations against Paul. He's calling him a cult leader. He's calling him a danger to national security. He's calling him a racist. And Paul responds in a very interesting way. He tells the judge Felix that, look, we can talk about all these accusations if you want. They're not true. But either way, none of that stuff he's saying is actually the main issue as to why I'm here, Felix. The real reason why I'm here, the real reason why the riot back in Jerusalem got out of hand and so big is because I brought up the issue of our future resurrection. That's why. Until I brought that issue up, your, your, your soldiers had control over the riot. But once I started talking about the fact that one day in the future, God will resurrect us from the dead, He'll call us back, and He'll judge us for how we've lived our lives. Once I said that, everyone lost their mind. They went crazy. And that's why I'm here today in your courtroom, being blamed as a public menace. There's something about the idea that one day you and I will be called back by God and be judged for our actions. There's something about that that really, really, really irks and disrupts people. It disrupted fifth century Jews who were in this riot, and it should disrupt us today. Jakardans, Americans, Canadians, or whoever else is here. It should, in a good way. How? Well, let's get into it. This is the Word of God, taken from Acts chapter 24, verse 1 to 27. It's a longer passage, so stick with me as I read it out. After five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and spokesmen, one, Tertullus. They laid before the governor their case against Paul. And when he had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying, Since through you we enjoy much peace, 
And since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation in every way and everywhere, we accept this with all gratitude. But to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly, for we have found this man a plague, one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of a sect or a cult named the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to find out from him about everything which we accuse him of. The Jews also joined in the charge, affirming that all these things were so. And when the governor had nodded to him to speak, Paul replied, Knowing that for many years you've been judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. You can verify that it is not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem. And they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. Neither can they prove to you what they are now bringing up against me. But this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So I will take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. Now after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. While I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult. But some Jews from Asia, they, they ought to be here before you and to make an accusation should they have anything against me. Or else let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council. Other than this one thing that I cried out while standing among them, it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. But Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off, saying, When Lysias the, the tribune comes down, I will decide your case. Then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody but have some liberty, and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending his needs. After some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and coming judgment. And Felix was alarmed and said, Go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I'll summon you. At the same time, he hoped that money would be given him by Paul. So he sent for him often and conversed with him. When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Porcius Festus, and desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. Thus says the Lord. There are three things I want to point out here about the idea of our future resurrection or judgment. First, how Paul brought it up to Felix's attention. Two, how Paul focused on it for Felix's good. And three, how Paul tailored it to Felix's need. Okay? Let's start with our first point. How did Paul bring it up to Felix's attention? So the Jewish prosecutor here, Tertullus, starts off by accusing Paul of, of three things, right? Essentially, in verses 5 to 6. First, he attacks Paul's character. Paul's a racist plague, he says. Then he attacks Paul's agenda. He's a sect leader. He's a cult leader. Then he attacks Paul's actions. He wants to defile the Jewish temple. 
And Paul quickly responds to those accusations. He said, okay, first of all, in verse 16, I went back to Jerusalem because I was bringing alms or I was bringing financial aid that I've raised from non-Jewish churches to support the Jewish churches in Jerusalem. So, no, I'm not racist against Jewish people. I'm raising money for them. <laughs> okay, that doesn't stand. Second of all, I already explained how Christianity or the cross isn't a random cult that goes against the Old Testament. And you can brush up on the previous sermons if you want to hear more about this reasoning. Christianity and the cross is actually the fulfillment of the Old Testament. Everything in the Old Testament points to Jesus, points to Christ and His cross. That's what He said in verse 14. Now, you don't have to agree with that. That's fine. But don't just throw around the cult stamp on people that you disagree with. What a lazy way to have academic discourse. Don't do that. And lastly, I didn't defile the temple. I went to the temple after doing all the purification stuff that y'all forced me to do. That's what Paul said in verse 18. So none of the stuff you're accusing me of holds up, okay? It's not true. But I'm not going to get lost in any of that because honestly, they're all side issues anyways. Do you know why I'm actually here, Felix? Paul says in verse 21, do you know why I'm here? It is with respect of the resurrection of the dead that I'm here in trial before you this day. That's why I'm here. As soon as I brought this issue back up in J-Town, everyone lost it. Everyone started fighting against one another. And that's true. Look back at Acts chapter 23, verse 7. It says that after Paul talked about the resurrection during the riot, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided, and the riot went crazy. Okay, let me ask you to stick with me here. We got to get a little bit into the history um, of all this between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, or else you're not going to understand what God's trying to tell you from this passage today. Okay, so stick with me here. Why was this issue of future resurrection so divisive back then for the Jews? Because there were two Jewish schools of thought back then who disagreed about the idea of a future resurrection. And these two people happened to be leading this riot in Acts chapter 23. First group was the Pharisees. Second group was the Sadducees. Okay, that's what Paul said in Acts chapter 23 verse 7. The Pharisees, let's talk about them first, they believed in a future resurrection, meaning they believed that after all this is done, one day we will all be called back by God, who is the true judge and king, and he will hold us accountable for every single little thing we've done. There will not be one ounce of sin and mistake and injustice and selfishness and impurity overlooked whether on a global scale or on a Liam versus Elena, who took my toy scale. They're my kids, by the way, if you're wondering why two church members are fighting over toys. They're, they're my children. Every single aspect of our lives that has not been brought under God's rule will be accounted for everything hidden in the secret of our own privacy, in the dark, silent corners of our minds. Everything will be weighed and judged. So wipe that smile off your face right now, is what the Pharisees would say. Judgment is coming. 
And it's like, okay, <laughs> that's the Pharisees. But on the other side, we have the Sadducees. The Sadducees didn't believe in a future resurrection at all. They believe in the Old Testament, but they believe that in the Old Testament, the idea of shoal or death is just this place where nothingness existed. Okay? It's a bit of a nihilistic sort of philosophy where there's nothing after this life. There's no resurrection. God's not going to call anyone back to be judged. There's no heaven or hell. Nothing. And when you die, it's kind of just like, puff, you're gone. Cease to exist. Okay? So these are the two opposing views about future resurrection and judgment. And some of you here may be thinking right now, okay, why is that such a big deal? <laughs> like, why does that cause a riot, you know? Why speculate about how the story's going to end? Just worry about how are you going to live your life today. That's what's important, right? Well, you're right. That's true. But see, that's exactly the problem. That's what makes this whole thing so sensitive because, think about it, whether you like it or not, whatever you think happens at the end of this story will affect the way you live today. There's a connection, okay? And the people here in this room may be a bit divided as well into which one you lean toward. Some of you here may be today, here today, and you agree more with the Pharisees. Let's call their position religious legalism, okay? That there will be judgment, that everyone will be held accountable for their actions, and only the righteous who pass God's moral test in life will be raised up to eternal life or heaven, and those who fail God's moral test will be raised up to everlasting shame and contempt, which is hell. And some of you here are thinking, oh man, what an exhausting world to live in. Is that really true? So what, we're just supposed to like tiptoe around this angry God our whole lives, hoping that he doesn't punish us? And also, doesn't that kind of world produce this kind of sense of moral superiority, right? If you think that you pass the test, you're going to be prideful if not. To, to some people, the philosophy of, of religious legalism, that you got to earn your way to heaven or else you'll be punished in hell, that sounds very unhealthy and exhausting and pride-inducing. It's a kind of world that you don't want to live in. But some of you may agree with that or lean toward that. But some of you here may kind of lean on the other hand with the Sadducees, that you kind of lean towards believing there is no future resurrection. You know, let's call that extreme position nihilism. No judgment, no heaven or hell. After this life, it's just eternal nothingness. But see, that presents a problem as well. Tons of problems, actually. A pastor once pointed this out, and this is worth considering, I think. He said, people who hate the idea of future judgment are usually privileged people who's never experienced real injustice in their lives before who, by the way, is who the Sadducees were. The Sadducees were a group of elite, wealthy, political people who had a lot of power. But go ahead and ask people in this world who's had to endure injustice their whole lives, and they've had no power to do anything about it. Ask the Jews in the Holocaust. Ask the people who live under tyrannical government. Ask those who've been treated unfairly and taken advantage of by powerful people their whole lives and they can't do anything about it because they have no power. For them, <laughs> the idea that one day 
a more powerful and fair future judge is coming to hold everyone accountable, that doesn't make the world tiring and mean. That actually gives them a sense of rest. It makes the world feel nicer and fairer. You see? So Paul, okay, back to the courtroom. Paul brought the courtroom back to this issue, this tension. But why? Why did he do that? Well, not just to get into an irrelevant philosophical debate. Remember, he was on death trial. Why would he have a philosophical debate on death trial? This was serious for him. What was Paul trying to do? Paul did this for Felix's own good. And I want to propose to you today that God is bringing this issue up to us right now in this passage for our own good. But how? Let's go to our second point. How Paul focused on it for Felix's good. So Felix here in this courtroom and us today in this room reading this passage, we're being brought to a crossroads of sort, correct? Here's the big question Paul is asking Felix, and here's the big question God is asking all of us here today. Which one do you think is right? The Pharisees or the Sadducees? Is the world an exhausting place where God is this mean judge up there seeing who passes and fails his moral test based on how good or religious they are? You know, is that the truth? Or is there no such thing as heaven and hell and justice is just functionally a momentary privilege that people with money and power have today? But it's not something that will be guaranteed to everyone at the end of the story, okay? Which world do you choose? Ye modern people. Do you choose a morally exhausting one or an unfair and aimless one? You see what Paul's doing here to Felix? You see what God's doing to us today? Paul is cultivating interest in Felix's heart for a gospel presentation. He's working up to that. Because if you think about it, those are two pretty bad options to choose from. In the Pharisees' world, you sacrifice kindness. And in the Sadducees' world, you sacrifice justice. Which one do you want? And here's how some people try and get out of this tension, okay? They say this, well, just choose the middle option, where God is kind of half just and half kind. Well, that's the worst option of all. Because <laughs> now you're sacrificing both God's justice and God's kindness, you know? He's just kind of like half and half. Wherever you land in this spectrum, you will end up with a subpar God and you'll end up with a less than ideal world. That's not fully just and fair, nor fully kind and forgiving. And I want to argue that every other man-made religion and philosophy and worldview out there, you can fit into the spectrum. <clears throat> On the left here, you have the very strict legalistic religions, right? Say, so you've got to be good or else you'll go to hell. Okay, they're on this end. And here you have atheism, right? There's no heaven, no, he no hell, there's nothing. And then you have every other worldview and religion and philosophy that kind of says, well, you know, just be kind of good enough because as long as you're better than most people and as long as your good is more than your bad, you're, you're fine. You know, they're kind of in the middle. 
None of those provide us with a true God and a good world. It's subpar. Either way, every man-made philosophy or religion out there, we've come up with sacrifices, either God's justice or God's kindness. How do you escape this, Felix? Paul's baiting Felix here. What do you do? And lo and behold, Felix took the bait, so to speak. Look at verse 22. Felix says, you know what? Let me think about this for a second. Just lock this guy up. You know, give him some comfort. Let his friends see him. But let me, let me just think about this, and I'll, I'll bring it back up to him later. It's a gospel opportunity. That's exactly why Paul was in Rome to testify to the gospel. He was working up to this. Okay, that's Paul for you. Even on death trial, he's looking about ways to share the gospel. And Felix did end up calling Paul back in verse 24. It says, after some days... Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, and he sent for Paul to hear him speak about his faith in Christ Jesus. And Paul shares about how his faith in Christ Jesus then affects his understanding of the resurrection and final judgment. But Paul does it in such a way that's very specifically tailored to Felix's life. Okay? This leads us to our last point. How did Paul tailor his message? He tailored it for Felix's need. Go to verse 25. Finally, you know, Felix took the bait between the tension. He doesn't know which one to choose. And, and he brings up Paul. Let's talk about this. Paul shares the gospel. And Paul shares three things, verse 25 says. First, Paul talks about righteousness. Second, Paul talks about self-control. Third, Paul talks about coming judgment. And we read those three topics. And we who know what the gospel is, we think to ourselves, that's a... That's not really the gospel, Paul. <laughs> How, righteousness, self-control, and coming judgment, that doesn't sound like the good news, right? The gospel should be about forgiveness from judgment. Why aren't you sharing the good news, Paul? Well, because to some people, the good news isn't yet good news until they hear the bad news. And based on Felix's life, Paul knew that Felix needed to first hear the bad news. Why? Stick with me one more time, one more tiny historical detail that we got to know about Felix's life, or else you won't know why Paul focused on these three topics, okay? In verse 24, our passage mentions Felix's wife's name, Drusilla. This is an important detail that Luke, our author, puts in here. Why? Because it was common knowledge back then that Drusilla was Felix's third wife. He divorced his first wife for a younger second bride. Then he divorced his second bride for an even younger third bride, Drusilla, who at the time was about 18 years old. And right before Felix married Drusilla, Drusilla was actually just recently newly wed to another man that Felix then threatened and robbed Drusilla from. And this was common knowledge back then. Felix was a powerful man who abuses his power and treats women wrongly. And then we also see in verse 26 that Felix was trying to get money out of Paul like a bribe. Maybe he heard Paul raise support, this alms, and he's like, oh, he has a lot of money. Let me get money out of him. So Felix is a powerful man who will abuse his power for sex and money. And everyone knew this, including Paul. So you know what someone like Felix needs to hear? before they hear the good news of the gospel, 
they need to hear the bad news. So in this tension, Paul kind of goes this way first, and he says, in a sense, Felix, the Pharisees have a point. They do. You may be a powerful judge today who can get away with things, but you better wipe that smile off your face right now. Because one day, the ultimate judge, one much more powerful than you, will call you back. And he will hold you accountable for the way you've used power, sex, and money. And the way you've lacked righteousness and self-control. He's building up. He's still building up to the cross. But before Paul was able to get to the cross, to the good news, Felix in verse 25, it says, he was alarmed by Paul's warning, and he told Paul to go away. By the way, the Greek word for alarmed here is emphobos, which is where we get the word phobia from. Felix didn't want to listen to Paul because he had phobia against this idea of future judgment. Why? Because he realizes that if this future judgment thing is true, there's a lot about his life that he needs to change right now, and he doesn't want to change it. And we can all relate to this phobia, can't we? I mean, if we put our life, I mean every detail of our life, without any hidden rocks left unturned, on this big LED screen behind me, and watch it from beginning to end, can we really say that every part of our life will be held as honorable and good before the sight of a righteous and perfectly holy God? Can we even say that every part of it will be held as honorable and good before this crowd today? <laughs> Who wants to be judged like that? Not me, not Felix. He had phobia. So Paul, man, he set everything up perfectly up to this point. Felix's mind was interested. Felix's heart was engaged. But before Paul was able to wrap things up with the gospel, Felix got triggered and bailed because he thought Paul sided with the legalistic religious Pharisees. And he stopped listening. He left. But you know, what Felix might have heard if he just stayed and listened for a little bit longer, I'm almost certain Felix would have heard Paul say, yes, there will be future judgment. Yes, my faith in Christ says that God will hold us accountable for our sins. The Pharisees do have a point. But the Sadducees kind of have a point as well. That in a sense, my faith in Christ also says that God will remember my sins no more. The gospel says that God is a God who will punish sin. He's just. But yet at the same time, He's a merciful God who will never remember our sins anymore. And it's like, how does that work? Aren't these two things opposing? How can God both punish our sin and yet remember our sins no more? Well, you see, Felix, I think he would have heard Paul say, that's what the cross is all about. On the cross, 
God demands an answer for our sin and our lack of self-control and our unrighteousness. He doesn't just let sin go. It's paid. It's paid. But here's what's so beautiful about the gospel, Felix. Friends, here's how the gospel is different than exhausting religiosity. The gospel says that God himself is the one who came down and paid for the justice we deserve. And now because of that, he remembers our sins no more. No more. All of your mistakes, Felix, friends, all the ways you've misused your power and sex and money and anything else, God on the cross says, I've paid for it. I will remember it no more. No more. It is finished. So both the Pharisees and the Sadducees, in a sense, kind of have a point. But at the same time, they totally miss the point. See, the gospel doesn't fit in this spectrum. It's a totally different thing altogether. The gospel doesn't say that this world is run by a mean God or an unfair God. It's run by a loving God who graciously forgives and forgets your sin because he's ransomed you and paid for the cost himself. Mercy and justice upheld both at the same time without sacrificing the other on the cross. This is the only worldview that gives you that. That's where Paul was trying to get to with Felix. I really do believe before he bailed. And look, I don't know where each of you are here today in your view about God and life, but let me summarize this from our passage today. If, like the Sadducees, you think that there is no such thing as future judgment, then like Felix here, you're going to live your life indulging yourself in things like money, sex, and power, or anything else without a thought toward God. I mean, why not? Go for it. There's no accountability. YOLO, right? Let's do it. But at the same time, if like the Pharisees, you try to change your behavior and repent only by shocking your system with the fear of hell and future judgment, if that's your angle, then also like Felix, you're going to feel phobic toward God. You're going to resent God. You're going to be suspicious of him because he's this, this judge up there that wants me to change my behavior with threats. One, this will make you forget about God. Here, it'll make you phobic toward God. And that's usually the tension that we all ping pong back and forth with, isn't it? But if Felix would have stayed in that conversation, he would have seen a just and merciful God who died on the cross so that he may be forgiven and live. He would have seen a God who's more worthy than money, sex, and power. He would have seen a God who became poor. He would have seen a God who denied worldly pleasures. And he would have seen a God that laid down his power to save him from the future judgment that he deserves. 
then, by God's grace, he would have been transformed, not because of fear, but because of eternal love. Think about your life. Do you want to change? Do you want to become more godly, more like Christ? That's how you change. By beholding the one and only true God of the cross. Don't be like Felix who's stuck in the spectrum of forgetting about God's laws or feeling phobic toward, God, toward God's laws. You need to burst out of that imprisoning spectrum and fall in love with the God of both justice and mercy. That's the point of this passage today. I don't know how you're ping-ponging back and forth right now. Get out of it. It'll get you nowhere. You'll end up in a subpar world with subpar God. Let the gospel shock your system. Let it disrupt you. Let it renew you for the better. And may your eternal future be changed by it for the better, if you receive it. And may the one true God of both justice and mercy receive the glory that he deserves from your transformed lives through it. Let's pray. Father, on that cross, when you sent your son to die for our sins, you gave us a picture of the most ideal world. You revealed to us a God who is not subpar, but who upholds all of the good virtues we know to be true all at once without sacrificing the other. Both justice is paid, yet mercy is given. And we now, as the recipients of this just mercy, as the ones created for your worship and glory, this is what will shock us out of forgetfulness of the law or phobia toward the law. This is what's going to get us and turn us into worshipers. Make worshipers out of the people in this room today. Show them how the gospel is different than any other worldview and religion and philosophy that they've been given, that it should lead them neither to disobedience and immorality nor to legalistic fear and exhaustion, but it should lead them to deep and lasting worship, for they now have a living hope that although we fail and sin and make mistakes, we have a living hope. We have a resurrected Savior who has told us we are His forever. Turn the hearts here toward you as we speak of this truth through song. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.